Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Jesus. And so my first day there, I met my cabin leaders, Jesse Bogue and David Holton, and found out the theme. It was superhero camp. Our, our cabin's theme was Hulk, and we got these sweet action figures. I could, like, throw rocks and stuff. And it was really cool. And then Jesse found out that I didn't know Jesus, and he decided to change it. So we went outside, and we sat on the steps, and we prayed my first prayer, and I accepted Jesus in that moment. Well, after camp, I felt like that community, just the community of this church was right for me and I just really liked it. So I started talking more and more with the people that were involved with Camp Agape and just kind of, they led me to get involved with the church and I heard about our discipleship program called GEAR and I just jumped right into it because the more I get to be with this community, the better it is. Well, this is my first time ever being on the other end of things. I'm so used to being a camper because I went to the camp for the first five times that they had it. And then, you know, a couple years later, here I am being a leader for it and knowing what it was like for my leaders back then. And it's just a really, really great experience. Like, I get to do games, and I got to preach, and I got to play worship. And it's just awesome. I really wanted you to hear Nathan's story. And the reason I wanted you to hear it is so that you can see how the cycle of believing works. That Nathan, when he was seven years old, you heard the story. Jesse Bogue took him outside and prayed their first prayer, his first prayer together, and he received Jesus in his heart. Jesse passed on something that was in his heart. He gave it away, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, Jesse's in heaven with Jesus. But part of him still lives on. It's the passing on of your faith. It's the passing on of what you believe about the good shepherd. What an amazing story. And what I love about this story is Nathan went on to speak in the evening service Wednesday night of Agape Camp and he was talking really to his own people. He was talking to people that he knew exactly what they have experienced, what they've gone through because he had been there. And now he stands before him and he teaches the gospel. And at the end of his message, he invited all those that wanted to know Jesus just like he did to receive him in his heart. 68 kids received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That's the cycle of believing. The next night, Jonah Fry preaches, and 14 kids come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
I want you to get a hold of this today and what the cycle of believing really looks like. And today, we're going to talk about believing in the Good Shepherd. And to do that, I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 30. That's John, chapter 10, verses 19 through 30, because it's here we continue our study, Life with the Good Shepherd. Now, if you remember, we had broken John 10 down into three parts. Part one is knowing the shepherd and his voice. Part two is leading like the good shepherd. And today, as we've already mentioned, believing in the good shepherd. And I want you to listen to and follow along with me to verses 19 through 30. And I want to put a little note here. I'm including verses 19 through 21, even though it naturally connects with verses 11 through 18. And I'm going to explain to you why I have done that in just a little bit. But we're going to look at verses 19 through 30 together. Let's read that. It says this. It says that when he said these things, remember he's in the discourse of being the good shepherd, God's begotten son. And he says these things, and the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It was about winter time, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, or the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work that I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they know me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now, I want you to get the picture here. Jesus was in the temple a few months earlier, and that's what the attachment of 19 to 21 is all about. He was there for the Feast of Tabernacle. So he's there, he goes back to his home in Galilee, and then he comes back for another festival, and this is the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah simply means to dedicate. And again, remember, John is very purposed with his times and his dates, and here is no difference. So let me explain to you the feast here that's commemorated as a rededication of the temple. What had taken place is this temple was rededicated to the Lord by Judas Maccabeus in 165 B.C. And the reason it was rededicated is because prior to that, there was a wicked ruler who ruled all over Syria, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he embodied the spirit of Antichrist. He heard about some scuffling and some inner politics going on in Jerusalem, and he wanted to squash what could be a rebellion. So he came in with a vengeance. He massacred hundreds and thousands of Jews. 
And then really the worst part in Jewish mind and thought is that he went into the temple, the most holy place, and into the Holy of Holies, and he ripped out the altar. He tore down all the sacred symbols. He set up his own altar, his own god of Zeus, and on that altar he sacrificed pigs. And then he established himself as really the ruler of that place and that time. And the other thing that he did is he told all the Jews, you can no longer, you are forbidden to practice your ancient customs. You can no longer practice your devotion to God in the manner that you have for thousands of years. And then he says, I will practice what I want to practice. And what happens then is this little revolt rises up. And it starts with a family called the Maccabees. There are father, there's a father and four brothers, and they go into this revolt, and they do these ambushes on Antiochus Epiphanes' army. Antiochus Epiphanes gets a little distracted. He's looking toward another country that's causing him some problems, and there they take advantage, the Maccabean family. Now, the father was killed in the revolt, and the son, Judas, rises up to be the leader, and ultimately he conquers and overthrows Antiochus Epiphanes out of uh, Jerusalem. So he goes into the temple and he makes it right. And when he goes in, he sees the menorah has been disregarded, that, that everything has been turned into idols. And what he does is he looks around and he wants to reestablish this temple. He wants to dedicate it. And he looks and they have oil, just enough oil for one night. So they light it. And the miracle is that that oil lasted for eight nights. And so thus it's called in another term, this is the festival of lights. So Jesus comes to the temple and he's responding, he's honoring what took place in the time of Judas Maccabeus. And then you look at verse 22 and you realize that John is sending a message to the Jews. Pay close attention to this. This is the last opportunity Jesus offers the Jews' salvation during his earthly ministry. Remember, this is his last public appearance. And he's giving them an opportunity to receive him as the Son of God. He's giving them opportunity to see and follow him as the shepherd over all of Israel. But there's a warning that comes through this gospel message. The warning is the doors are closing. You see, Jesus went to the house of Israel first, and the Apostle Paul says that. He says that in the book of Romans. He says salvation came first to who? To the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And Jesus even declares, I've come to the house of Israel. But the house of Israel wasn't listening. They weren't paying attention. Literally, time is running out for God's chosen people. A time to dedicate themselves to Jesus, the Son of God, the Shepherd of Israel. The open door is closing. The season is coming to an end. And even John says this, and it is winter now. Now you have to know that there's a signal being sent. Winter is the end of things. Things are closing. Things are dying. And he wants his readers to hear this. The open door is closing. The season's coming to an end. And I'm not sure that we fully grasp this concept altogether. I don't think we understand this because for the most part we live in a place and a time of plenty. 
The idea that there are always more things to come. There's always enough. Nothing will ever really run out. Here John warns us that time does not run out and that we, if we're not paying attention or living in unbelief, we will miss what God has for us. He's saying you're going to miss this through your unbelief. He's shouting it from the mountaintop. He's letting his people know, please pay attention. Winter is coming. You have to understand this. You need to know that the doors are closing because the Savior of the world has come to you. It's, a, it's an amazing, an amazing clarion call. You see, this idea, I'm not sure we understand. I think there are many of us who are living with a false sense of security, and that is that there will always be plenty. Plenty of opportunities. Plenty of second chances. Plenty of time. Now, please hear me, because I'm speaking to this family right here who's in this room. We're in a season right now of amazing grace where God is bringing salvation and more disciples for Jesus Christ. Please do not miss this. This I've never seen before. I've never been a part of something like this where people's hearts are so receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what I fear in the body of Christ is our eyes are blind to this. We just don't see it and maybe it's because of unbelief and I'm asking God to open your eyes so you see what the harvest is all about and you see people coming to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You've heard today some of the things that are going on. When these kids took a trip to Spokane, 64 people received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Camp Agape, you heard 82. Vacation Bible School, you heard 70 salvations. And then Rwanda, 14,700. I'm not misspeaking here. Some people say, well, did he say 14? What did he say? I said 14,000. And 700 people came to Jesus Christ. That's something you have to see. It's an open door. It's a dispensation of grace. And I do believe this, that whatever season we go in next will be ordained of God. But the season you're in right now is the season of salvation. You must see it. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. And the sad part about saying that is when I read this story, I realize I'm a lot like the Pharisees. You see, the Jews in our story were missing God's salvation because of their unbelief. In fact, Jesus points out three times in verses 22 through 38, he says, you don't believe. I don't want to be caught like that. I don't want you to be caught like that. So I have to look at this and ask myself some serious questions. What are the signs of unbelief that we see in these Jews? And when I looked at those signs, when I was reading and I said, oh, Lord, forgive me because what I'm seeing here, I see in my own heart. Now, let me tell you why you need to know this, why you need to pay attention. Because if you're like me, there are times you read through the Gospels, you see what the Pharisees are doing, and you say to yourself, I could never be like that. I want you to think again. Because when I read this, I think there are parts of you and me in the Pharisees. What keeps us from believing in the good shepherd? There are a few things that I want to point out to you in this passage. And it includes verses 19 through 21. Remember earlier I said I would explain that to you? 
Well, let me read it again. And this is what it says. It says, when he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinion about him. And some said he's demon-possessed. He's out of his mind. Why listen to a man like this? And others said, this doesn't sound like a, a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Here is the first thing and the first obstacle to believing, and that's this. It's the notion that Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not the son of God. Notice what the second group said here. They say what Jesus is not, but they make no attempt to say what he is. You see, in that second group, there's no commitment to Jesus Christ. There's no commitment to Jesus except to say, well, he's really, really a good guy. Jesus is really, really a good teacher, and that's where I'd like to keep him. I'd like to keep him just as a good teacher who can bring wisdom and knowledge to me. To me, this may be the most spiritually dangerous place for a person to be. At least the first group weren't fence sitters. At least the first group just declared, I think he's got a demon and he's insane. By the way, it's the only place in the Gospels those two are mentioned together because typically in the Gospels when it says you have a demon, the implication is you're insane. But here these people hate Jesus so much they say, hey, he's a demon. If that's not enough for you, he's crazy. That's what they're saying here. They hate him. They absolutely hate him. But they're not sitting on the fence. The second group, as sweet as that sounds, oh, he doesn't have a demon. A demon can't make your eyes see, but they don't go any further than that. The second way of thinking allows you to live your life with no absolute spiritual commitment. It allows you to live your life with no absolute pathway or direction. And that's not the way the fathers of Israel taught their people to live. That's not the way we're taught to live. Joshua says this in his latter days as instruction to the children of Israel. He says, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then there's another place that I love in 1 Kings 18. It's the great showdown that Elijah has with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he says to these people, he says, how long will you falter? You know what he's saying? It literally means, how long will you hop back and forth? How long will you go back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Very clear instruction, but here's what's disturbing about the story. It goes on and it says this about the people. It says, but the people answered him not a word. Their silence was deafening. Why do you think they didn't answer? At least not with their voices. Well, I'll tell you why. They wanted a little bit of both. That's why. They wanted a little bit of Jehovah. Give me the blessings. Give me the promises. Give me the fat of the land. I love that stuff. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. And I like a little bit of Baal and what he has to offer me. We can just do what we want. We can be adulterers. We can be addicts. We can do any of this stuff. 
because Baal allows it. What they wanted was not much different than what people want today. You know what people want today? They want a designer God. A God who fits their preferences. A God who looks more like them. I don't want a God that looks like you. I don't want a God that looks like me or acts like me. I want a God who's higher than me. I want a God whose ways are higher than me, whose thoughts are higher than me. I don't want one that looks like you or me. But today we have people saying, I want a God who looks just like me. A custom-made God. A God to order, a God to fit. I can just make it up as I go. A little here, a little there, a little of that. Pop, here's my God. Please hear this. Either Jesus was a madman or he was a savior of the world. Jesus Christ cannot be just a great teacher. He cannot be just a great example. He's either a huge fraud or he's the son of God. So what does Jesus do for us? He forces us to make a decision. No more hopping back and forth, picking and choosing your God. You are on the horns of dilemma when you look Jesus square in the eyes and he says, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow me or the designer gods of this world? Who are you going to follow? The choice is ours. What will it be? That's always the question. Here's another obstacle in believing in the good shepherd. It's blaming God for not responding how you expect him to respond. That's found in verse 24. Listen to what it says. And the people surrounded him and they asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, then you tell us plainly. And you say, why am I getting so excited? Because that's the way they said it. These aren't pleasant people. These are people who are angry at Jesus, and that's the way they phrase the question here. It says that the Jews actually hemmed Jesus in, that they encircled him in a threatening manner. Now, use your imagination here so you get the picture. They closed in on him like a pack of wild animals. And they said this, answer our question the way we want you to, or else was the attitude of the Jews. Here's something else that's in the translation that's implied with this. It says this. It says that they were saying, the Jews were saying, you haven't been fair to us. God, you're not fair. Look at all these things that happen. How could you be a fair God? Sound familiar? It's no different. Time has gone on. A heart has remained the same. Jesus never answers them outright. Did you notice that? <laughs> In his discussion with the Pharisees, he never really comes out. Why? Can I give you one of the reasons among many? These Jews are asking the wrong question. Here's what I mean by that. What Messiah meant to the questioning Jews wasn't what Messiah meant to Jesus Christ. What the Messiah meant to the questioning Jews was this. You will be and are you going to be a political slash military leader in the same fashion and form as King David because that's exactly what we're looking for. Are you this Messiah? Wrong question. How's he going to answer that? 
Because his kingdom is a kingdom of everlasting life. His kingdom is a kingdom that gives you spiritual freedom. His kingdom makes you satisfied all through your life and brings peace. That's the kind of kingdom he's talking about when he calls himself a Messiah. They weren't asking the right questions because their attitudes were attitudes of unbelief. You know, when you're already mad at God or blaming God, you'll never get what you want from Him. You're already angry. How could you even see the answer? My granddaughter comes over and every now and again she gets a little cranky. And then she asks Grandma and Grandpa for something. She says, I want some chocolate milk. We say, ho, ho, back it up, girl. Now, I know she wants chocolate milk, and Grandma and I want to give her chocolate milk. But her attitude stinks. And so we say, honey, change your attitude. When you change your attitude, you'll get a little chocolate milk. And then she says, Grandma, Grandpa, can I please have some chocolate milk? There you go. Your attitude's gone. We can give you chocolate milk. You know how many times we go to God demanding certain things, and he says, oh, 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 back it up. Your attitude stinks. When you get your attitude together, you come on back. You see, blaming God is not going to get you anywhere because it comes with a bad attitude. And here's another obstacle. And listen to this. Please listen to this. Fear that Jesus will dismantle your ideas of God and religion. That's found in verse 24 again. It's a question. And this question, hear this, this question, because you don't get it when you see it in black and white, is absolutely wrought And full of fear. And fear always gets in the way of your faith. Where there's fear, there can't be a lot of faith. Where there's faith, there's not really a lot of fear. And so that's what Jesus is doing. The underlying motive here is that their God and their religion is being threatened here. It's the kind of fear, listen, it's the kind of fear that brings on the spirit of murder. Do you know how many millions of people have been killed because of fear that grew into the spirit of murder? And you say, well, where do you see that? Go to verse 31. They picked up stones to kill him. That was the second time they wanted to kill him. They were acting as the judge and jury. And that wasn't the end of it because there's another time in here they want to kill him again with stones. Three times. That's the spirit of murder. And where was that harbored? Where did that come about? It came because of the fear in their life. The Apostle Paul, before he knew Jesus, what did he do? He murdered Christians. Why? For fear of the loss of their religion, a fear of the loss of their faith. Listen, you have to see this because there's parts of this in us. Jesus says, what you've thought in your mind and your heart is really an act of sin. And then you say, well, how does that apply to me? Have you ever done what I've done? Somebody's caused you problems. You say, I just wish they'd go away. Wish they'd drop dead. What is that? What is that in us? It's that little speck of death. Left unharnessed. It grows to the atrocities that we have seen throughout history and even in our most recent history and don't you ever think that you're exempt from something like that because the moment you do you've just fallen into a deception 
The heart is exceedingly wicked, and no man knows its wickedness. The only thing that brings that to where it needs to be is Jesus Christ. He's the one that redeems our heart. He's the one who redeems who we are. Listen. These guys are asking the same question Caiaphas asks in the next chapter. In John chapter 11, verse 48. This is what Caiaphas says. He's the high priest. He's the big dog. He says this. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And we're not going to let that happen. We're going to kill him before that ever happens. They were afraid that they were being dismantled. How many times has your faith felt threatened? What is your reaction to that? I see a lot of Christians that I'm... Sad to report over the airwaves that just hurl insults back and forth at each other. That is awful. God says to this, he speaks to this, that we are to be people of peace. We're to be people who stand firm in their faith and we're not threatened, but we're constantly wanting to learn more about our good shepherd. The warning is this, don't solidify your faith. Don't, don't, don't draw borders around your faith and say, well, I'm done. <laughs> I know enough now. I can get by just fine. If you do that, you've just stopped growing and you've entered what's called a stalemate, a stagnant relationship with God. You and I don't know everything about God, believe me. And so what God is saying is keep your heart open. Keep your heart open to follow the good shepherd. Listen. Jesus Christ will always be a threat to false ideas of God. He will always be a threat to the unrighteous practices of religion. And that means us. Here's an example. An unrighteous religion always breeds exclusive practices or behaviors. It's always an exclusive group. It's exclusivism. Did you notice that about the Jews? They said, hey, we got a corner on the market with religion and we're making a ton of money. We don't want anybody to threaten this. We like what we have. And we're not letting anybody else in unless they got a hat like me. Listen, beware of that in your own life. The moment you start to cluster like that, the moment you start to spiritually fade away, God asks us to keep our doors open, our hearts open, and we embrace people. It's constant. He says, whoever will come, let them come. And it's always with an open heart. And the Lord loves his people. Listen, Jesus brings the end to exclusive, exclusive behavior. And here's the last obstacle I see in this passage, and that's this. Refusing to see what Jesus is doing right before your very eyes. That's what it says in verse 25. Jesus replied, I've already told you and you don't even believe me. The proof is the work that I have done in my Father's name. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you don't believe me. You haven't seen this. You don't know. You, you, it's right in front of you, and you're not responding. It's right before your very eyes, and you can't see it. There's a clarity with who Jesus is, and if you come in the right attitude, you can believe. And notice it says here, you believe not. This means right now, this very moment. This is the root problem that Jesus identifies. It's not just the past unbelief. It's the present unbelief. 
And to rephrase it, if I may, I think Jesus is saying this. You are perpetually in a state of unbelief, and so you refuse to see what I'm doing before your very eyes. Wow. That's an indictment. So what do I want to do? I want to pay attention. I want to know what's happening before my very eyes. I don't want to miss God. I don't want you to miss God. And the thing that blinds us the most is an unbelieving heart. We have to say, Lord, take those blinders away. And so the question is, are we paying attention to the significance of what Jesus is doing before your very eyes? Or are we blinded? And here's some of those things that blind us. It's our own pride. It's our own plans. And it's our own problems that can typically, typically get in the way. And then I want to close with this. I want you to look at what defines those who believe in the good shepherd. And I'm so thankful for that because Jesus ends this discourse by saying, here are the qualities of those that follow the good shepherd and believe on him. First, they know the voice of God in verse 27. And my sheep know my voice. Now, have you ever... And why do you think that they understood that? Why do you think they knew his voice? Let me tell you why. Because they have a spiritual receiver called faith. Did you know that when Jesus was putting you together and he was doing this before the foundations of the earth and he knew who everyone was and he's putting you together, he put one component in all of us before he was done creating you. He took this little receiver called faith and he put it into your spirit and he says, use this because someday I'm going to call you and when I call you, you're going to hear my voice because I put a spiritual GPS in you and I know where you are and you need to know where I am and know my voice. And that's faith. And everyone is made with faith. God wired you that way. He put that in you. And when the shepherd speaks, his sheep are on the same wavelength with the shepherd. How do you get on the same wavelength with the shepherd? Let me give you a few things. First of all, practice hearing his voice. Did you hear what I said? Practice hearing his voice. Because what typically happens is we want to hear the voice of God when we're in trouble. We don't care about his voice before we're in trouble. But when we're in trouble, God, speak to me. I need to hear your voice. How do I hear your voice? You've got to practice hearing his voice every single day. That when you get up in the morning, you say, God, good shepherd, speak to me, your sheep today. I want to hear your voice. Practice hearing the voice of God. And the only way that you can do that is get alone with God, put your cell phone in another room, your computer in another room, your TV in another room. I've had people say, well, I, I listen to the voice of God. Well, where do you do that? I sit right there and listen to God. I say, where's your computer? Right here. Where's your phone? Right here. But I put it on silent. You know, phones on silent go, boom, boom. You can hear them. Computer goes, oh, another message. You're going like this. You're not practicing hearing the voice of God. You need to hear the voice of God. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up with two brothers. We were all kind of rough and tumble. Outside, it was like a tornado moved through our neighborhood, really. I mean, things just got all messed up. And we would be four blocks away and dark was coming and you could hear my dad. My dad, even though we couldn't see him, had this distinct whistle. And he would make this whistle, this call, like a shofar, you know. He'd blow, boop, 
and we know, whoa, pick up what you're doing and get home as fast as you can because I just heard the shepherd whistle. And if I don't get there, I'm going to miss out on a hamburger. I'm going to miss out on some good food because he'll just start eating. He doesn't care. So you start running home. Why? Because the sheep could hear the whistle. It was a whistle that we could hear. It was a whistle that was familiar to us. Why? Because we practiced hearing that a long time before that whistle came. Here's the next thing. Put the busy down and listen. You're so busy sometimes. You're just jamming God in. Hey, I'll give you a sliver right here. I ain't got 15 minutes for break. I'll go by the water cooler. Hum, hum, hum. You get the picture? I think the greatest enemy to listening to God is your busy schedule. Put the busy down and really, really listen. And the third thing is, listen for his voice in all things. What I mean by all things, listen for his voice in circumstances, in the counsel of others, and in the word of God. And when you do these things, I know this, you will be on the God frequency and you'll hear the shepherd's voice. Here's another quality that defines those that follow the good shepherd and believe in him. They're known by God. And I love this. You have to see this as the best part. Do you see verse 27? There are three parts to it when you look at it. They know his voice. They're known by God. And they follow God. Three parts. In the original language, this one right here is the one that stands out above the others. In fact, in the original language, this is first, not second. And if you were to read it today, it would be the thing in those three things. It would be the thing in bold print. The phrase in bold print. They are known by God. That's the most important thing that you can know in life. Please hear this. It's the most important thing that you can know in life. Because when you're known by God and you know you're known by God, there's a peace that passes all understanding. When you know that you're known by God, there is a thing that comes over you that gives you that that direction in life every single time. Because you know something. You are known by God. And everyone in this room is known by God. I want to be known by him. And it says here, I'm known by him. This is the centerpiece of verse 27. It is the knowledge that Jesus has of his sheep that is the important thing. And what a blessing to know that this is about not our oftentimes feeble hold on Jesus, but it's about his firm grip on you. My hold on Jesus may loosen and strengthened depending on the trials of life. But his grip is firm no matter what life throws at you. We should notice that the teaching in these few verses is not the believers will be saved from earthly disasters, but they will be saved no matter what earthly disasters befall them. Here's another one. They know they have been given the gift of life. Those that are believers in the Good Shepherd know they've been given a wonderful gift. Jesus, he gives this wonderful gift of life to his sheep. And this is what the gospel is all about. And let me say something about eternal life. It is not futuristic. Hear this. Heaven is futuristic for you. But eternal life is for you right now. This very moment. This very moment. You have in Jesus eternal life. Jesus is speaking about the quality of life. And that's only possible in receiving the gift that God has for you. And then the last thing today is this. They know that they are safe and protected forever. I love that. The sheep that believe 
know this. They know that they're so safe. They know that they're so protected. Those with this amazing gift of life know they will never, ever perish. Can I tell you what it reads in the Greek? It reads like this. Those that know him as their good shepherd will never experience eternal destruction or total annihilation. Hey, that's pretty good news, don't you think? Jesus tells us that no one will snatch them out of his hand in verse 28. And then look what it says again if you have this translation. In verse 29, it's the ante is upped. It says, he says, no one is able to snatch them from his hand. Wow. You know what it's saying? It's saying that your shepherd is all powerful and the sheep have nothing, absolutely nothing to worry about. Just like the scripture says, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Is it tribulation? Is it distress? Is it persecution? Is it famine? Is it nakedness? Is it peril? Is it sword? And the answer is none of these things will separate you from the love of Christ. You will not be snatched out of his hand. Forever you are protected. My grandson said the other day, he said, Jesus is in my heart. And he paused and then he said, and he can't get out. I said, man, he's got it. He's figured something out there. That's the beginning of knowing that he's safe and protected in the hand of the shepherd. Wow. Listen, the only thing that you'll experience as far as being snatched away is that you'll be snatched away from death. And guess who's going to snatch you away from death? The same one that says you can't be snatched away by wickedness, but he's going to come back someday. And it's the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where this phrase is used. Here in the Gospel of John chapter 10, and then in 1 Thessalonians, the same word is used. And here's the story. I want to tell you this, a story I finished with Billy Graham, and he wrote this. Billy Graham said just a few days before President-elect John F. Kennedy was to be inaugurated, I was invited to join him and Senator George Smathers in Florida for a golf game and an evening visit at the Kennedy Compound in Palm Beach, Florida. And as we were driving back from the golf course, President Kennedy pulled the car over. He turned to me and asked, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again? Billy Graham says, I was dumbfounded at the question. For one thing, I never dreamed that Mr. Kennedy would ask a question like that. And for another, I wasn't even sure that he knew Jesus was supposed to come back. <laughs> Having only been with him for a few moments prior to that incident, he had no grasp of his re religious knowledge. So he just answered. He said, yes, sir, I do. President Kennedy said, all right, explain it to me. For several minutes, I had the opportunity to talk to him about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I've often wondered why he asked that question. And I think part of the answer came a thousand days later when he was assassinated. Cardinal Cushing read the verses that I've quoted below at President Kennedy's funeral. And millions of people watched and heard the service around the world. And the verses were these. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those which are alive and shall remain will be caught up together. 
They'll be caught up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. (laughs) The statement, Billy Graham goes on, in verse 17 especially stands out. We who are alive on the day we will be caught up together with those who have gone before to meet us in the air. And that phrase, caught up, is translated in the Greek and it means to be snatched away. The day is fast approaching when Jesus Christ will come back to snatch away his followers from all the graveyards of the world. And those of us who are alive and will remain will join him in the great escape. And that is the hope of the future For Christian believers. God has a plan for everyone's life. The question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And we're going to conclude our time together. I want you just to think about and reflect on. What has stood out to you in the message that you've heard? This is what I know. There may be some here that have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've never come to that place in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord says today to all of us, today is the day of salvation. Today is your day. That he stands, the Bible says, at the door of your heart and he knocks. There's a receptor in you. It's called faith. And when the good shepherd speaks, something lights up in your heart. You can try to run from it. You can try to ignore it, but but it's there. It's the way you are wired. Are you going to receive Jesus into your life? That's the question. Today, what I want to do is I want to pray, and I'm going to ask everyone in this room to pray the same prayer with me. And after I'm done praying, for those that received Jesus Christ, who believed on him today for the first time, I'm going to ask you with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, to lift your hand. And I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do that. I just want you to lift your hand as an affirmation that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The prayer goes like this. Please follow me. Dear Jesus, I come to you today, and I believe in you. I believe that you're my good shepherd. I believe you're the one that takes my sin away. I believe you're the one that gives me eternal life. So today I confess with my mouth. Today I believe in my heart that you are my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Still with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed this prayer and you received Jesus today, would you lift your hand right where you are again? I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. What I want you to do is just lift your hand. Good. Good. Keep your hand up just for a moment because we want to get you something that's kind of like a starter kit. It helps you understand Jesus a little more. And once you get this thing, once you're handed this, this pamphlet, then you can put your hand down. I'm so glad that you heard the word today. God has a plan for your life. You lifted your hand today. It's very personal. God has a plan for your life. And you've responded to that faith in you to believe on him. The Lord says, all those who believe on me will be saved. Let's start this new life together. Let's journey together. 
For those that lifted their hands, would you tell somebody today that you receive Christ? The word says, if I confess Jesus before men, that he will confess me before my Father in heaven. Let's do that together. Father, we thank you, we worship you, and we applaud the salvation of the Lord. Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. Thank you.